And my name? <laughs> Thank goodness I have a slide to help me with that. <laughs> my name is Doug McDowell. Only because I have a slide. We'll, we'll get into it here. Let me find my space. <laughs> so Isaiah 54 is going to speak of a restored relationship. It's the re restored relationship that God wanted with Israel since the beginning of time. It's the same restored relationship that he wants with each one of us. And it's the restored relationship that he's promised for us in the eternal kingdom, in the new Jerusalem, that thousand years that's coming. We've been in the book of Matthew with Jack for some weeks now. And um, as I showed up to church this morning, I stepped back to the junior church just to kind of just peruse the notes. And I just flipped to where we had been studying in Matthew. And sure enough, there was like a word from the Lord about today's teaching in Matthew that I hadn't planned or prepared so I believe it's truly from the Lord. So I would just like to start with this verse from Matthew because it talks about Jesus still wanting this restoration with uh, Jerusalem and Israel. And he still wants this restoration in our life today. So yes, we're going to study Isaiah 700 years before Jesus, but Jesus is still fighting for us from now until eternity. So here's the word that he laid on my heart this morning as I stepped in here. And it's in Matthew 23, verse 37. And this is Jesus, he grieves for Jerusalem again. And that's what we're going to study today, right? Is that restoration with Jerusalem. Here it says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets and stoned those who sent you, how often have I longed to gather your children together as hen gathers their chicks and her wings you are not willing. Look, your house is blessed is right here for us right now to claim blessed who comes in the name of the Lord. For Israel, we have a promise we're going to learn about today that this time is promised. And they will be regathered in that thousand years, the millennium. But for us, it might be right now, right, that this, this blessing is available and he wants to restore this relationship with his church. So let's start off with a question today. Um, I think it's a really important question. A question and it, it's what comes to mind when we think of God? What comes to mind when we think of God? And especially when we're alone and in a quiet place. It's easy to think about God here at church. We had to get ready, come here, and now we're in praise and worship and we're thinking about God rightly. But it's about all the times in between. Like how are we thinking about God in our daily lives? So as we go through and study about the relationship of God and Israel, let's keep that in the back of our minds and how we think about our relationship with the Lord. 
Today's a really sweet piece of scripture, and it's my privilege to bring it to you. Um, this book of Isaiah was written 700 years before Jesus. Uh, and, it dis- and so I want to start off by just giving you a piece of homework, right? I'm a school teacher. Um, I don't get, get to give enough homework at school, so now I get to come to church and give you homework, right? So, I, so here we go. So your homework, if you haven't had a chance to read Isaiah 52 and 53, please do so in the next week. It is an absolute blessing, um, and it r- really parallels some of the things that we've been speaking about in Matthew. In Isaiah 52 and 53, uh, Isaiah descri- describes in incredible detail the things that Jesus went through to secure our salvation. Uh, these prophecies speak of uh, his beating, his crucifixion, being hung between two criminals, a rich man's tomb, and how he purchased our salvation. I remember early in my walk, this was a real something I really grabbed onto to see this prophecy so clearly written so far before Jesus. Uh, it, was, it really confirmed it. Um, so that's your homework, 52 and 53. Uh, we're going to go into 54 this week, and today we're going to talk about some of the responses uh, to Jesus' finished work. Those of us that are under the new covenant are saved. We're in a relationship with Jesus. And sometimes we might think a little bit too small um, about that fact and what it took for Jesus to purchase our salvation. Yes, we think about he paid the eternal price for our sin and he took away that daily power of sin in our lives. But today in Isaiah 54, we're going to look at what another aspect that Jesus' death secured for us. Um, for the future nation of Israel, for all Gentiles, um, and for the millennium. This, they refer to it as the, the kingdom uh, years. We're going to see, uh, Isaiah is going to explain Israel's release from Babylon, this regathering of his chicks, right, that Matthew just told us about, this regathering uh, of his people. Isaiah 54 starts with a call to worship. And then he'll give us two examples in how he delivered the Jewish people from their activity, captivity. Uh, the first example of the Jewish people in captivity is likened to a barren woman uh, without a child. So let's read it here in Isaiah 54, verses 1 through 3. Sing, O barren, you have not, you who have not born, break forth into singing and cry aloud, for you have not labored with child. For more are the children of the desolate than the children of a married woman, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent. Let them stretch out the curtains of your dwelling. Do not spare. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. For you shall expand to the right and to the left, and all your descendants will inherit the nations and make desolate cities inhabited. It's a beautiful picture of restoration. He likens Israel to the barren wife, Uh, the barren wife in the Middle East was a picture of emptiness. There was a lot of shame and disgrace that went with a picture of a woman that could not carry child. He tells Israel to break forth from that shame and disgrace and sing and cry out. He wants them to praise. This is the promise that he set forth, that their children would expand 
and be abundant. So let's take a look at their captivity for a second. So during um, Israel's captivity, it was 70 years in Babylon. And during that time, they experienced so much shame and disgrace, a real loss of identity. Uh, Remember, God allowed the Babylonians to come in and conquer her. And this happened because of Israel's rebellion. So she's under God's hand of discipline. And during this time, she did not increase in power. She did not prosper. The Babylonian exile and captivity meant more than just oppression for Israel. It meant shame, disgrace, and humiliation. There was this emptiness and this separation from God that God allowed because of Israel's rebellion. And it makes me think of my own rebellions. Um, I'm an artist. Uh, I trained through college, uh, which was both a blessing and a curse. Um, But I think about this emptiness that I felt before I knew Jesus, right? Before I was saved. And I remember studying back in school. uh, I'd take these philosophy and psychology classes. And I remember, you know, studying Nietzsche. And he would talk about a creative pregnancy. And as an artist, I would pride myself on this creative pregnancy. Oh, I'm going to give birth to something so wonderful. Look at my art. It's so great. And when I think back on that, I was so empty that that emptiness was almost like a sickness and that I was trying to fill it with my own pride and my own knowledge and my own look at how smart I am to study this. And and when I look back on it, it wasn't filled with the right stuff. That was that separation from God. And instead of having a creative pregnancy, I just had an emptiness because I know this because I know what the fullness of Jesus Christ is in my life today. He has set me free, and I'm free indeed, and now I'm full with the Holy Spirit, and it's him who makes all of this creation wonderful in my life. It was before, that was before I knew Jesus. We're trying to fill ourselves up with other things. God's promise, promise to us and Israel a glorious release from this exile and captivity but also from the shame and humiliation that we've had from our past. He tells us to get ready, prepare. I'm preparing you for what's coming. And he's telling Israel to prepare because their nation is going to expand, that they need to make bigger tents and make their stakes strong and prepare for this expansion that's going to be beyond anything that they could have imagined. And we see a lot of the fulfillment of this in the New Testament. When Jesus comes and the church grows and thousands are saved. It's also a picture of the millennium. The thousand years of the new Jerusalem. And God is going to bless their socks off. It's a promise that uh, he's made. And the Israelites, they have to remember these promises. Because it's the hope that's going to get them through their exile and captivity. It's the same hope that we have to hold on to when we go through our own trials, when we get discouraged, when our past shame and humiliation start to take control in our lives. We have to go back to those promises that Jesus gave us. And do these verses sound kind of familiar? The, um, oh, barren, you who have not born. Uh, They're in the New Testament. You can find the Apostle Paul using these verses in Galatians, in his letter to the Galatians, in uh, chapter 4, verse 27. 
And what Paul is doing there is he's referencing the miraculous birth of all of us under the new covenant. Paul probably intended the phrase, more are the children, to also indicate the children of the New Testament or the new covenant, because they would far outnumber the children of the old. People of the new covenant will by far outnumber. And Paul explains that not only did our faith in Christ deliver us from this eternal penalty of sin, but it also delivered us from the past shame and disgrace that our past sin brought into our lives. Paul said to the Galatians that once you are in Christ, the penalty for what you did was placed on Jesus, and the shame and disgrace was also placed on him, that we are to enter into salvation new, this new creation, that we've let go of that past, that shame and disgrace, and that we realize that we're new in Christ and can move forward. Uh, I think there's a great verse in 2 Corinthians. Uh, It's chapter 5, verse 17. And it says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. So so if you're a born-again believer and you still label yourself as your old self, I think we're really missing out on the blessings the Lord has for us in this new creation. I think too often we've labeled ourselves and we've held on to these labels from past. I was an alcoholic 20 years ago, and I'm a Christian now, but I'm still an alcoholic. I think we have to let go of those old explanations of how we label ourselves and realize that we're new in Christ and separated from that old life and define ourselves as this new creation. So we step forward and say, this is what the Lord is doing in me now and how he protects me every day. We have to let go of those old labels because we are set free and I'm free indeed. Israel is going to need to remember that when they step back into, when he gathers them back up and sends them back into Jerusalem, they're going to have to remember this identity um, of, that they are new, a new creation. When Israel returns to her husband, she will no longer bear the shame of that separation anymore. In love, God will forgive her and take him back to himself. And now we're going to look at the second example of the abandoned wife whose reproach has been removed. So read with me here in verses 4 through 6. Do not fear, for you will not be ashamed, neither be disgraced, for you will not be put to shame. For you will forget the shame of your youth, and you will not remember the reproach of your widowhood anymore. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name, and your redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. He is called the God of the whole earth. The Lord has called you like a woman forsaken and grieved in spirit, like a youthful wife when you were refused, says the Lord. Here the Lord promises rescue from Israel's shame. And he uses, like he used the barren woman, now he's talking about the abandoned woman. Same fundamental idea of disappointed hope, right? The shame, the embarrassment, the disgrace. And now here he's, 
the Lord is likening himself to a husband. And the husband is going, he's, the maker is going to stand in the place of the husband. And for centuries, women have held on to this promise, especially when they've been hurt or forsaken by their own husbands. They've held on to this promise that the Lord is stepping in and is going to um, not forsake them. And the principle is true. God will supply and meet our needs, our emotional needs. He will rescue us from the disgrace and shame, uh, especially when others have forsaken us. The Lord of hosts is his name. To comfort and strengthen his people, he's the maker, the redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. He's called the God of the whole earth. Not only does he supply a husband, but he supplies himself at that. It's kind of that same picture as the father, right? We've spoken in the past of the broken relationship with the father, but God steps in as our ultimate father, right? And a good one at that. God does five things here when he restores the relationship. First, he uh, has mercy on her. Then he redeems her and he returns to her. And this is by the removing of that shame and disgrace. And then he gathers her or returns her home to her youth. And this is a picture of Jerusalem. Everything he said here, he said to Israel before she went into captivity. God says these things will happen in the future and you're going to have to remember these promises that I've set out for you. I can only imagine the discouragement. And he says, remember these promises. I'm going to fulfill them. And we're going to see in verse 8 here, uh, when Judah's in captivity in Babylon, she begins to struggle in remembering these promises. So let's notice what God says about uh, a struggling nation. Verses 7 through 8. For a mere moment I have forsaken you, but with great mercies I will gather you. With a little wrath I hide my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting kindness I will have mercy on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. For this is like the waters of Noah to me. For as I have sworn that the waters of Noah would no longer cover the earth, so have I sworn that I would not be angry with you nor rebuke you. For the mountains shall depart and the hills be removed, but my kindness shall not depart from you, nor shall my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord who has mercy on you. Now those are some good promises that we have to hold on to. His discipline over Israel was temporary. His correction of us is temporary. And now he looks forward to a glad reunion, this lasting relationship. Seventy years in captivity. And he says here that it's just a mere moment. <laughs> I don't know, it seems kind of long to me, but... How often do we go through like our own trials? And we're like, God, will this ever end? Are you still there? 
And then we remember, God, you're so outside of space and time. It feels like a lifetime, Lord. But God knows that compared to eternity, what we're going through is a mere moment. The 70 years for the Israelites was a mere moment. Because the Lord has eternity on his mind. He's saving souls for the everlasting life that he's promised us in heaven. Paul would later write to the Corinthians about some of the trials they were going through to turn into the eternal weight of the glory when we see the Lord. And this is what he's saying to Israel. When you get on the other side of this, you'll see that I've been shaping you and preparing you and molding you for the future that I had waiting. I mean, many of us can look back on our own walks and our own testimony and be like, wow, I had no idea he was doing that. But it really prepared me and prepared my testimony for what I'm doing today. Even, the, even those hard times and the times where we were broken and the times we were discouraged and in trouble and rebelling against the Word and God, he's using all of those times to say, I have, etern- I have your eternity on my mind and I'm preparing you for your future and what you're, how you're going to serve me and what you're going to do. So sometimes that going through the trial and saying that I'm under that disciplinary hand of God, I did this to myself, you sometimes say. You're like, I deserve this. I'm in trouble. I did it to myself. Maybe it's a broken relationship. Maybe it's trouble with the law. Maybe it's just allowing that shame and disgrace of your past to stay with you. Because this is exactly where Israel's at. Can you imagine all the numbers and how small their people were after this captivity and exile when he regathered them? I heard something like numbers like only 50,000 actually returned, right? They would have to hold on to these promises. Sometimes when we're in that space of that broken relationship, the trouble that I caused myself, um, we look to God and we say, I thought you were going to rescue me quicker. I thought you were going to change this quicker. I thought you were going to make this different quicker. And the Lord says, listening, sometimes it takes a little bit more time than you think to transform you, to prepare you for that next phase of your life. But trust me, listen to my word and believe, follow me. It's going to be absolutely worth it. In verse 10, he gives us the assurance of what he's saying to them. He says, For like the waters of Noah to me, just as God promised the waters would never come over the earth again, he's promising that his kindness, or he'll never put Israel into exile or captivity again. That his anger is going to recede, is going to be no more. He's not going to remember their past and all the times they rebelled. And he gives another example of his assurance. If that wasn't enough, if they don't remember the promise he made to Noah, he then speaks of the mountains. And he says, For the mountains shall depart, but my kindness shall not depart from you. Floodwaters will recede, but the mountains do not. But even if the mountains shall depart, and even if the hills be removed, and they're big, right? To remove a hill or a mountain, it's a big deal. 
The kindness of the Lord shall never depart. The kindness of the Lord is more certain than the mountains and the hills. His covenant of, pe- his covenant of peace is sure. Sometimes people are dumb. Sometimes people make dumb decisions. Have you watched the news recently? And sometimes good people make bad decisions. And sometimes righteous people make bad decisions. And sometimes we fall. We all have failures. And our biggest weaknesses are habitual. They repeat and repeat and repeat. And if those weaknesses are ingrained in our character and our environment, they happen over and over, sometimes 20 times in one hour. Some some of our habitual weaknesses are so ingrained that we can go ahead and be delivered And then one hour later, we're falling again. We saw Peter do that, right? We can look at the disciples and we saw them fall, right? Imagine that worst day, that worst day. Jesus has been arrested. He's going to the cross. And his disciples deny him. They act like they don't even know him. They're best friends. It's a great picture of the Lord's tenderness and his mercy. Because two weeks later, after he's been crucified, he's risen. And now Peter's still so discouraged because of the way he left his Lord hanging. He decides to go fishing. Now that's an obvious sign of depression. (laughs) Right? He's returning to his old way of life. That's all he knew. He was a professional fisherman. So he's like, oh, I don't even know. I'm such a failure. I'm going fishing. And his disciples are such great brothers. They're like, okay, man, we're going with you. So they go fishing on their own strength, and they catch nothing. They fish during the night, catch nothing. And on the morning, they see a man on the shore. Um, you can read this in John chapter 21. It's a really pretty picture of Jesus' tenderness. So the risen Christ is on the shore, and he's got a barbecue going, and he's making fish and bread. And they land on the shore, and Jesus is like, oh, how'd it go out there? How's fishing day? And they're like, oh, we caught nothing. He's like, oh, try again. So his, like, his first word's back, right? They, they left him. They, they denied him. They weren't there for him. And Jesus' mercy, our God's mercy, is to feed us and be there right for us, right when we need him, to lift us up and feed us. And he feeds them abundantly, like beyond anybody's expectations. They pull in the net that he told them to throw, and they pull in 153 fish. Big fish, it says. And their net's not even torn. And if you read the Bible, all the fishing they did, their nets were always torn. And then he says, give me some of that fish, I'll make you breakfast. Man, that's a God with mercy, right? He doesn't remember their past. He doesn't hold them, oh, you denied me. You know, he comes right where we're at and says, you're forgiven, Let me feed you. I love that little picture. The Bible says in Lamentations 3, 22 and 23, it says, Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. 
It's a steadfast love that never ceases. In other words, it doesn't stop. It never ends. It's unchanging. It doesn't get exhausted. God never, he's never tired of loving you. It's not like, oh, I've forgiven you 9,000 times, but 9,001, that was a big one. I'm going to tap out now. He doesn't do that. We go to the bed with the same old sins, but every morning he has new mercies for us. And what he can do in the, in the restoration of our own relationship with him and our restoration with our relationship with others, what he can do in 15 seconds or 15 minutes is more than we can do on our own in 15 years. Or 15 lifetimes. He has that miraculous ability. You got to give him credit for that. I mean, look at the restoration with Peter. Peter was so discouraged. He gets dressed, eats breakfast. And then what does he do? Is he, he reinstates Peter's authority. And he says, How, do you love me? And they do that three times. And then he says, now follow me and lead my sheep. And then Peter becomes the head of the new church and saves thousands and thousands of people. Let's look at the promises and prosperity, that peace and protection uh, that the Lord has for Israel and for us as we wrap up these last verses here, uh, verses 11 through 17. O you afflicted one, tossed with tempest and not comforted, behold, I will lay your stones with colorful gems and lay your foundation with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of rubies, your gates of crystals, and all of your walls of precious stones. And all of your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. In righteousness you shall be established. You shall be far from oppression. You shall not fear and from terror, for you shall not shall not come near you. Indeed, they shall surely assemble, but not because of me. Whoever assembles against you shall fall for your sake. Behold, I have created the blacksmith who blows the coals in the fire, who brings forth an instrument for his work, and I have created the spoiler to destroy. No weapon formed against you, you shall prosper, and every tongue which rises against you in judgment, you shall condemn." In this, the heritage of the servants of the Lord and their righteousness is from me, says the Lord. Mm. Mm. Once, we're, once we have been forgiven from our sin, it's separate from us. Uh, a good friend brought up to me the other day that the sin can't live in us anymore once we've been filled up with the belief in Jesus Christ. Because that sin, they can't exist in the same space. It's been removed from us as far as east is from the west. He says, O you afflicted one, tossed with tempest and not comforted. God cares about the afflicted one. And too often we afflict ourselves by thinking we're still living with that same sin. Believe it. He's paid the price. We can separate from that. When the Holy Spirit dwells in us, the sin cannot. And when we struggle and we're tempted, 
and tossed again, come back quickly to remembering that it's not a part of us anymore. We're a new creation. It's easy to believe that God doesn't care. But he does. And he gives that precious promise of strength. He's promising riches here. Sometimes when we're hurt, we think we're poor. He's also given us the safety and security through his righteousness. This picture that's being painted in Isaiah is a picture you can read about in Revelations 21. Second piece of homework. Yep. Revelations 21, some beautiful reading. Read it in the evening. It will absolutely bless you. And you can really see that God has an eternal plan for us and for Israel. The prophecy fulfillment is just just unreal. He's speaking of the millennium here. This is the new Jerusalem when he explains the crystals because we have not seen in Israel... Like this. We don't see streets paved full of gems. He's speaking of a future that's to come. The new Israel built by God himself. The beauty of the city of precious stones. God will teach his ways in those thousand years to those who dwell in the city. And so his justice and his righteousness will become the noticeable feature of their way of life. God is the creator of the earth and the whole world, and is in control of all human activity. He will make sure that no one fights against his people and be victorious. And sometimes the the section there, uh, verses 16, says, Behold, the blacksmith, and the spoiler for the destroy, can be misunderstood, or people can use it for other purposes. But what he's basically saying there is, I'm in control, I made it all, so listen to what I'm saying. You will prosper, and no one shall speak against you, and no weapon shall rise against you. I love this idea that, he's going, that all of our children will be taught by the Lord, uh, and great shall be the peace of the children. Sometimes when we're, when we're um, afflicted and tossed and not comforted, we think about our children, like how is this going to affect our children? And this wonderful promise that the Lord has our children. It's this precious assurance that we should not fear. Uh, The no weapon formed against you and prosper, the sovereign God who created this blacksmith, uh, I think it goes like this. So this is the promise uh, that you read in Scripture, and you say, well, if I'm a servant of the Lord and I'm a child of the Lord, and I'm serving the Lord rightly, does that mean that no weapon will rise up against me? Does it mean that nobody will speak falsely about me or hurt me? And that's a great Bible study, and maybe we'll build some kind of group around that idea. But I'll just kind of give you my opinion, a little bit from my own experience, um, that when we're rightly serving the Lord, even if the Lord allows something to come against you, It's because he's allowed it, and it's a part of his plan. So I would say that uh, the peace and safety are the heritage of those who serve and trust the Lord and experiencing God keeping me safe. And sometimes we just got to step outside of our comfort zone to experience that safety and security. 
But the Lord is allowing it to happen when we're serving the Lord. It's an opportunity for the Lord to do his work. We got to protect our testimony. We got to watch our tongue. Our Lord's in the business of saving souls, and we got to be careful not to let our tongue get away from us. Now, he says that it's a heritage for his servants. Now, this is not a blanket statement for all churchgoers. The Lord specifically says that it's for those who are serving him. So I think we have to be really mindful and ask the question of where we're at in our service to the Lord. Are you a servant of God? Have you turned your everything over to him? And if so, then you can rest easy in these promises of protection. Going back to that first question, uh, what do you think about Jesus? What do you think about God in those quiet and alone times? Uh, A.W. Tozer uh, wrote this book, the knowledge of the holy. And he states that what you think about God is the most important thing about you. He goes on to say, the most revealing thing about the church is found in her ideas of Jesus and her most significant message is what she says about him or leaves unsaid. A hundred lesser evils are caused by the one great lack of the knowledge of God. So, not do you like him, but what do you imagine him to be? Who is he in your life in those quiet and alone times? I think perhaps we think too small of him. And we think too low of him or not frequently enough about him. And this low view of Jesus keeps believers in bondage. It creates a dull spirit and a boredom in our spirituality. I want to be fascinated by his majesty. I want to think about him all day in everything I do. Are we ministers of the gospel in our actions and in our word, in our relationships, in our marriage? Are we setting that example of what it looks like to be like in love with the Lord, with, with our Lord, who gives us these promises? According to Jesus, you cannot build your ministry on him if your life is not built in him. Because a message worth having comes out of our encounters with him, not merely what I think. We have to be experiencing the way that he's working in our life. In order to do that, we have to look to him frequently and be like, oh, let's see what you're going to do today. Tozer said it before, and it's still true today. The most negligent subject in the kingdom of God is God himself. We love to talk about relationships, skills, leadership principles, economic, political ideas, ministry skills, how important I am, how to be happy, make life easier. All of these are great subjects, minus the I'm important. Uh, all these are great subjects, and some of these I even teach. But what about him? What about him and all of those? What about the unending riches of Christ 
and about the glory of God that shines in the face of Jesus? What about the listening and following and trusting and believing? It's simple. He just asks us to believe in him and then follow what he says. We make it so complicated. I think it's time to turn back to the focus of the Lord and embrace, him, embrace knowing him. Make him our ultimate desire and be fascinated by his majesty. He loves each one of us and he wants that restored relationship for Israel, for us, and he's made a promise for our future. He's preparing us for it. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for bringing your word to our family. Lord, we're just absolutely blessed to be uh, a part of you. Lord, we ask to go out and just remember you and remember the promises that you set uh, forth for us, Lord, that we can be a family that's growing in you, that's joyful and excited about all the great things you're doing in our lives. Lord, help us let go of our shame, our humiliation, and our past, Lord, as we move forward as new creations in Christ. In your mighty Son's name we pray. Amen.